Welcome to the Imperial Healthcare Business Podcast. My name is Ivy Adedugwe, and today I'll be speaking to Dr. Lokan Shepherd. He's a medical director of the private uh, medical clinic at Harley Street, and he holds several other positions. We'll be discussing his role as a medical director in the private healthcare system. So very welcome, Lokan. Thank you very much. So what I'd like you to do is to just start us off just talking us through your your journey into management um, and tell us about the companies you manage at the moment. So just to clarify, um, I act as medical director or chief medical officer for two companies. One is, as you say, it's it's called the Private Clinic of Harley Street. And the other one is a charity called the Healthcare Management Trust. And the, the charity operates two hospitals and two care homes. So how did I end up in this role? It's a very, it's a very good question because it's, if you'd asked me um, <clears throat> when I graduated from medical school where I'd be in 25 years, uh, this is, this, you know, I, I didn't foresee this happening. Uh, I started out in my specialist training in, in anesthetics and intensive care and became an intensive care consultant. And for various reasons, I decided to leave that area of, of medical practice um, 11 years ago uh, and pursue uh, a management and clinical role in the independent sector. But as, as, it, as, the, as the management roles have evolved, actually, my clinical practice has, has, has completely disappeared. And I haven't, I haven't practiced clinically now for four years. So I, I haven't, you know, I haven't purposefully set out to become from day one a medical director. I got, you know, I, I was initially invited to, to be, have a role in leadership within the independent sector. I became a responsible officer when re- revalidation um, started in 2012. And it was mainly through my role as a responsible officer that the, the two companies that I work with um, took me on board um, Having worked with me as a, as a responsible officer, they took me on board uh, after a period of time and um, asked me to, to take on a more significant role. And this is where I am. I'm, I'm now a full-time medical director and I'm very much enjoying it. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And um, do you miss the clinical side for, by, by any chance? Uh, sometimes, um, <clears throat> even though the bulk of my job was intensive care, actually the, the bit I miss is the, is the anaesthetics. Well, it's nice to hear that, actually, um, because I think there's often a divide between um, people on the on the management side and people on the clinical side. Um, and, you know, keeping a perspective of the clinical bit often helps with the management bits and vice versa as well. Um, so tell us what a typical day is like for you um, running a private health organisation. There isn't a typical day, is the, is the easy answer. Every day is different. And, of course, in the last 12 months... The days have become very different. Um, so a, a typical day in the last 12 months, 60 to 80% of that has been spent working from home. Part, part of that has been engaging in meetings like this through, through uh, online uh, media and okay, occasionally having to, to, to actually go into hospital or office to um, address particular issues. Um, a typical day before covid it was, it was the other way around. So 80% of the time I was on site and would spend probably one day a week working from home. 
what does a typical day involve? It's interesting. <laughs> it involves a lot of meetings. I, I, I love telling this because one of my children asked me recently, what do you do in these meetings? If you have an awful lot of meetings, Daddy, what do you do? And my response to her was, uh, I actually, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is true. We, we, have, we have a lot of meetings. So some of them are very productive, obviously, but um, we have a lot of meetings and you do come out of them and you wonder, was that a, was that a worthwhile way to spend the last hour? Um, so yeah, it's a, a typical day is, a, is lots of meetings, emails, telephone calls, and um, troubleshooting uh, when specific uh, issues arise, you know, at short notice. Yeah, that sounds like a very varied day, as you said, um, and probably reminiscent of your days as a as an anaesthetist, actually. Um, so, give us examples of sort of strategic roles um, and managerial things that you undertake within your organisation? From a strategic point of view, my role is to ensure that what we do on a day-to-day basis is, is, of the, is of the right quality and to the right standards. And what has that got to do with strategy? Um, it's making sure the right systems are in place to ensure safe patient care and that we're meeting our the regulatory requirements. And actually, with quality, uh, you know, the, one of the messages I always get across to non-clinical colleagues who are in management is with quality, you, you bring efficiency and with efficiency, you run a better business. So in the past, clinical governance and quality used to, you know, in a typical healthcare provider board meeting, it, it used to be something that you'd discuss towards the end. I'm talking about the private sector here, you know, a lot of the executives about, about the, what we call P&L, profit and loss. Uh, so they're more, most interested, executives are most interested in the, in the accounts. So, for example, one of the things I've always uh, driven forward, uh, and it's, it, it, it has worked in the two organisations, item one, number one on the agenda in our board meetings is quality. So the, what do we mean by uh, in, implementing strategic changes or, or working with the, the business around strategy? It's deciding on services that any, any business, particular business, provides and deciding on which ones to develop, which ones to not to develop, which, which areas of um, practice need improved technology, how do you embed uh, quality across the business, uh, you know, in terms of an audit framework, for example, uh, in terms of recording how the staff work in, in recording your, your incidents, how you manage complaints. So all of that um, is is related to my strategic role uh, within the companies I work with. And inevitably, because of because of the role and the, the position, it, it also has management responsibility. So not just management of the, of the overall organization, but management of specific individuals. So for example, in one organization, I have a head of risk. I have a lead nurse. I have... Um, uh, an audit manager so I, I you know my job is to is to manage them on a day-to-day basis engage them in the whole strategic process based on what that is they, they, they are set tasks or uh, objectives and then um, they're then measured against those and as you know as soon as you start managing people there are personal challenges as well 
because everyone's everyone is a personality and everyone has their own problems and um and uh, quite often some of these come up um with very little very little warning so mm. it's as important to be a good people person yeah. as it is to be a strategic person if, if you're going to be if your company's going to be successful so there's absolutely no point in having a big brain but being somebody who people can't approach for a bit of advice okay. even if it's about very what may be trivial personal matters um you've got to be You've got to be able to manage those as well as looking after the profit and loss of the business. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more, actually. I think when you invest in the people that work with you or for you, um, they work for your business, so you don't have to worry, um, essentially. And they look after all the bits where you can't see and you can't physically manage yourself. Um, So you mentioned a few things um, previously. So you talked about being the responsible officer. And so for those who are not familiar with what this role is, um, do you mind just explain a little bit about, you know, what, what that entails and how that involves you dealing and managing people? Sure. So um, in the early 2010s, a system of appraisal and revalidation became mandatory for doctors uh, in the UK. And this was to improve the governance of medical practice in particular um, the accountability of doctors in terms of what they do and how they work. And this requires um, doctors to have an annual appraisal where they review their overall practice, where they talk about their uh, professional development, they talk about uh, their scope of practice, they talk about um, with their appraiser, uh, they talk about um, any incidents that they've been involved in that they'd like, you know, that they've reflected on, that they want to you know, that they've recorded and that they have had an impact on the way they work. And they also, if, if, if there have been concerns raised about them by what, any particular stakeholder, whether that's a patient or a colleague, etc., that, you know, that, that's an opportunity to talk about those as well. And the appraisal is a, is a confidential conversation. An appraisal document is produced at the end where they, both appraiser and appraisee agree on its content, sign it off, and um, it go to the the doctor's responsible officer and the responsible officer is another doctor usually a senior a senior doctor in a medical director role who has overall responsibility for the doctors who work within the organization and every five years that responsible officer is required to recommend to the general medical council who who regulate doctors uh, that this doctor is safe to continue practicing so that's in a nutshell what, what it's about it came on the uh, on the back of the fallout from the, uh, a doctor by the name of Harold Shipman, who was a, a general practice in, in Greater general practitioner in Greater Manchester, who also turned out to be the biggest serial killer in the history of, of the United Kingdom. And that's how the um, the process of re- appraisal and revalidation evolved. It was it was re- recognised that the governance of medical practice needed to be improved. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so then that just brings me on to sort of the next question. Having had that role in the past, in the private sector where you mostly are employing independent healthcare practitioners, um, how do you navigate to making sure that, you know, your organisation fulfills all the regulatory requirements by CQC or the, you know, private healthcare um, regulators as well? So this, it's very much, uh, in the, the, the whole regulatory process is, is in the independent sector 
is very much the same as it is in the NHS. So every uh, provider, so the, the, this just, again, for people um, who, who aren't aware of how the UK system is regulated, so the, the, the provider is regulated by the Care Quality Commission and the individual doctors are regulated by the General Medical Council and there are regulators such as the Nursing and Midwifery Council for other healthcare providers, as the names suggest. Um, so we, uh, as an independent provider, um, we are inspected and regulated by the Care Quality Commission in the same way that an NHS trust would be. And we have to meet the same, you know, the same standards of, 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 of practice. In terms of doctors who work with us, it's, a, it's slightly different because in the main, doctors aren't employed in the independent sector. They work under what's called a practicing privileges arrangement. There are policies, so a provider will typically have various policies in place that the doctor will have to adhere to, to be granted practicing privileges. And that practicing privileges agreement is reviewed on a, on a regular basis, usually one every one or two years. So it doesn't provide, the, the practicing privileges agreement doesn't provide the same security to a doctor that an employment contract would. Having said that, uh, historically, doctors have felt that because they're not employed, that they're, they're not bound as, as, as rigidly or shouldn't be bound as rigidly to policy and procedure in the independent sector that in the same way or, uh, that they would be in the, in the NHS. And that has, a, that has improved significantly in recent years, um, particularly as younger doctors have come, come through the, the, the ranks now. And they've, you know, they've been brought up used to the whole process of appraisal, revalidation, working to standard operating procedures, working to policy within their NHS trusts. So they're not surprised when they come along to an independent provider. They don't object um, as vociferously, shall I say, as some would have done in the past to the requirements that we have to, to work you know, within, within a, a, a similar governance framework that they used to in the NHS. So what has been sort of your biggest challenges um, as a medical director during this pandemic? The main challenge has been the fact it, it's the balance between meeting the demands from a financial point of view in, in, in terms of keeping the business yeah. businesses operational, but on the other side, ensuring that when services are provided, that they're provided safely. Yeah. It's, it's been the medical director of, of organisations who, who's, who's found it, in, I'm talking about in the independent sector, who's, who's, who's found it, they, they, have, they have been the focus of the decision-making Companies have depended hugely on them on keeping 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 businesses operating, but operating safely. And it's a very fine line that you have to, to yeah. tread. For example, one of the companies is owned by private equity. Private equity is only interested in PL. That's all they're interested in. So they want to keep the business open. And it's from my point of view, what I have to keep reminding them is that, that you know that's all very fine, but to operate a healthcare business, you've got to do it safely. Because if you don't, and you, it only takes one one disaster, and your PNL doesn't matter anymore. Your reputation's gone. So, uh, and uh, and it's not just patients either. It's staff. It's keeping staff safe. So it's been challenging, embedding culture changes and changes to the way we work. But very interesting as well. I can imagine it is. Um, 
because like you said the funding structure of a private healthcare company is probably more volatile in some ways compared to you know our nhs in this country um and i guess if if a company is fully funded by the private equity like you said there's always a push to make sure that it's operational and you're getting patients through the door in and out <laughs> um and it, you know and I know in the first wave, a lot of um, private hospitals were doing NHS work and being paid to do so. Um, was there? Did you, did you find there was a big of a, a bit of a scramble to get as much NHS work into the private health system? It wasn't so much a scramble. I think that even taking all the private stroke independent hospital beds in the UK into account, mm. there still weren't enough. Potentially weren't enough beds. Yeah. Uh, healthcare beds throughout the health system in the UK. So um, when the contract okay. with the NHS uh, was created uh, at, at the start of the pandemic or early in the pandemic, for companies that were able to provide the service, it, the, the NHS engaged with them. So just coming back to what you mentioned about, you know, having multiple healthcare professionals who are employed under a different type of contract in the independent sector. In terms of whistleblowing, for example, um, where does that where does that leave um, practitioners in the health in the private sector? Do they have the same protection um, for whistleblowing? So yeah, so whistleblowing is, is it's a part of legislation through all of through all industries um, in the UK. It's slightly different um, in the in the NHS because there's there's now the, the National Guardian. And, and, and that framework for whistleblowers in the NHS. But yeah, independent healthcare providers are legally obliged to provide a whistleblowing framework uh, by law for their staff to access. But both companies that I work with have a, a quite a robust whistleblowing policy. So in your career, either in the NHS or in the private sector, have you ever been involved in a in a case or in a situation where you're having to review a whistleblowing um, case? I have been both a whistleblower and a, and a whistleblowee. All right. <laughs> if if yeah. you're happy, would you be able to tell us a little bit about, about your experience being the whistleblower? Uh, whistleblower, very frustrating, not very uh, satisfy, satisfactory outcome. At the other end of the, uh, of the process, um, I'm, I'm quite confident of the, organ the organizations I work with have, have, have better systems in place. Yeah, I've, 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 I've had experience of people whistleblowing, and their concerns being, being addressed appropriately. So, you know, with the right systems in place, it, it, it can work. Yeah. So if you had any advice for, you know, so a chief medical officer of another organization, having had the experience you've had both on, on both sides, how would you say, how, what, would you, what would be your advice to how they manage that kind of situation? You mean a whistleblowing situation? Yeah. Um, I think from the outset, it's got to be led by what we used to call the human res HR, human resources department. You know, the, the, the chief people person has got to lead um, yeah. on the management of that. It's, um, and to ensure that um, the, the, whatever the situation is, that it has the there is access to external opinion and, and advice mm. um, for both parties. 
from an early from, from the outset and i agree with you on that um so we'll move away from sort of hr topics and just sort of come to how do you build strategic partnerships both inside and outside of your organization to make sure that you're building things even further um well it depends what strategic partnerships you want to build what types of strategic partnerships and uh it, 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 would, it would it would very much depend on uh, you know as i said a particular area um what would you say is your management style certainly on the basis of 360 feedback i've had uh, i think i'm very approachable and i'm i'm a, I'm a good listener but i have uh, high expectations so um i'll always provide support to, to my staff, my team, I'll always be there for them, um, and I tell them that. You know, I tell them, if you've got a problem, don't, don't, don't send me an email. Lift the phone, give me a ring. It's no problem. If I can't, if I can't speak, I'll tell you. I'll say I'll come back to you as soon as possible. But uh, never hesitate in, in in getting in touch. If there's a problem, let me know sooner rather than later. I have an open door approach. Literally, my office, the door's always open because. If you're not transparent and you're not approachable, you're going to suffer for it in the long term because you'll find out about things quite often when it's too late. I would prefer um, the most junior member of, of any organization to come and uh, speak to me um, at an early stage in a, in, a, in, a, in a process. And actually, it's very interesting. I did a, a, a day um, with a human factors day with uh, was run by a, an airline pilot um, a couple of years ago and he was telling us about a really interesting scenario that they do in the simulator where um, the pilot is there are a few things going on in the simulator that he's trying to to manage mm. this very junior steward comes uh, you know flight attendant comes comes and knocks the door says to the pilot there's a there's a, 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 a i think i think the the food in the in the in the uh in the in the, uh, in the kitchen i think there's a problem with the oven because i can smell a burning smell you know this this is a uh an attendant who the pilot has has only met for the first time i think it's their first week on the on the, on the job and the pilot completely dismisses this person and says go away and of course he fails the simulation because this junior steward was actually coming and telling them about uh, the burning smell that he was he was smelling in the galley was actually a significant air engine problem. Um, it, it to me it was it, 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 that story always, and that, that's a real you know that's a real yeah. story from a simulation um, program that was that it, 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 this British Airways pilot was telling us about, and, and it's always stuck with me. So I always say, no matter who the person is who comes to talk to you about a problem, listen to them um, and listen to them early. Because even though they might be the, the most junior person in the business on the first week in the job, they might have something important to tell you. Yeah, uh, and I couldn't agree with you more, actually. Um, I, I actually remember seeing an article about um, developing an organi a healthcare organisation and they were trying to design new lifts inside of the hospital, but nobody bothered to speak to the porters in the hospital and therefore all the beds in the hospital wouldn't fit into the lifts. And yeah. so, like you said, it's just coming down to listening to, you know, everybody on the front line and everyone who is your eyes and ears, where your eyes and ears actually can't reach otherwise. So, you know, I, I completely agree with you, listening to everybody, no matter what their role is. 
Um, so a few years ago, I, I was involved in, in development of a, of a 36 bed critical care unit. And um, we had a team who were involved in the planning program and it was members of staff. And initially the medical director said, this was when I was in the NHS, the medical director said, um, so we just need some, some doctors and some of the senior nurses from the critical care unit to get together. And somebody very wisely said, hang on a second. No, you need people from catering. You need people from portrait. You need, because they're the people will tell you how to, to plan a department, yeah. how it should be structured as much as your most senior clinicians. And they were right. You know, I, I agree because every individual's experience of not just a building or a space of everything is different. And until you can, you know, it's, it's all about the inclusion of society as well. So until you can see it from that person's perspective, you're losing out on a particular view, essentially, or a particular opinion um, that they yeah. experience. So just coming on to what do you think are, are the most important qualities of a good medical director? Uh, I think I've alluded to them in the, already. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's based on, on leadership, both management and leadership. And it's, it's uh, to be a good medical director, it, it's, you know, it's, it's the same qualities that you need to be a good, a good leader in other walks of life. So obviously you've got to have the, um, the, the, the experience and the background, but you've got to be, a, primarily you've got to be a people person and you've got to, um, is, is not to forget that the most important person in this whole process is the patient. Yeah. So, you know, so as, although you're, 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 You've got an executive role and you're a manager or a leader or at the end of the day you're there to ensure um, a safe patient journey as, as, as everyone is in, in management roles in healthcare but I think in particular uh, the, the role of the, the chief nurse and chief medical officer are, are particular around patient safety and good governance. Yeah and I couldn't agree with you more so just advice for our list, listeners, so just any, in case anybody wants to become a chief medical officer, I know you said at the beginning that it wasn't something that you had planned at the beginning of your career. So if you had to advise somebody starting out now who thinks they might want to be a medical director or a chief medical officer in, a, in the private sector, what do you think they should be doing in terms of formal education, in terms of upskilling themselves and preparing themselves for that role? Uh, think again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's a mixture of everything really. Qualifications are useful and it's, it's, it's useful to have um, some structure to, to how, you, how you practice in any role and, and a qualification will help you, will help provide that. But there's no, there's no, there's no substitute for experience. So see, seeing as much of clinical practice as you as you can so spend you know spend a significant amount of time in clinical practice and and you know think of it think of it as if you if you want to end up being a medical director think of it as a gradual process and and take on um small amounts of of um managerial or leadership roles at the start and and let, and let it evolve but uh, to, to be a, to be a good medical director you've got to um except the fact that uh, many of the challenges you face have got very little to do with medicine. They're, they're, they're more similar to uh, people who have executive roles in, in, in other walks of life and in other industries. 
Oh, I think you just uh, put that so succinctly. Um, <laughs> I have no further questions, really. So thank you very much for joining us. It's been a fantastic uh, half hour just talking through these things. Um, very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.